Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Female Prisoner Scorpion, colon, Jailhouse 41, starring Meiko Kaji, Fumio Watanabe, and Kayoko Shiraishi, directed by Shunya Ito. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's Gally in Glasgow. And back on Onnano, Urami Bushi. It's Devlin in London. We will treat you as a human just for today. It's Patrick in London. Don't worry, I won't sing the ding-a-ling song. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> oh, welcome back, gang. And welcome back, listeners. Now, listeners, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking along the lines of an infamous 80s Christmas song title. Yes, we do know it's Christmas time. But unlike the Celebrations Chocolate Selection boxes, we are keeping the bounty firmly in its place. So, bear with me. If you are still with me, indeed. You're losing us. (laughs) The fact is, we are doing Female Scorpion Prisoner, colon, Jailhouse 41, instead of a Christmas movie for our first film of December. So, again, stick with me. We're replacing a Christmas movie with a bounty bar of a film. Analogies (laughs) and symbolism. All right? Just like the film we're about to discuss... How are we, team? There we go. How long did it take to write that? Well, did you? You didn't even have an intro line. Well, no, I had to monologue then. So that's that's why I did. Where's your intro line? My intro line is Patrick. Welcome back from Rome. I actually saw a man in the Colosseum when I was there shout out loud to the heavens, "Are you not entertained?" <laughs> Wow. How embarrassing for that man. It was for his TikTok, wasn't it? I really wanted to say to him, like, he didn't say that in the Colosseum, he said it in the, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking ridiculous. Yeah, definitely. This is, um, very Christmassy pick from you. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping it festive. I've had this one, uh, uh, under my hat to an extent for months and months and months. I've been, uh, uh pretty much obsessed with this series for, for a long time, but, um, I uh, wanted to get this out there now because uh, this is coming up on the 50th anniversary of the original release date of this film. That was on December the 30th, 1972. So I've decided to uh, uh, grinch up everyone's Christmas and instead bring uh, you all in um, in my sack. Please cut that. Um, <laughs> a, uh, um, a classic slice of uh, what I think is one of the, the all-time great independent movies, B-movies, Japanese movies, uh, possibly one of my favorite films of all time. It's uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion, colon, Jailhouse 41. Now, S- sandwiches. Sandwiches, indeed. <laughs> well, actually, let's do a round table. I'd never seen this film before, so... No point in asking me what my first experiences yeah. were. Matt, Patrick, same as me. This one passed you by in the, in the 70s. We didn't what do you it. think? 
<laughs> well, I thought you would have uh, watched this after Uncle Buck, but clearly not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say this, Devlin, before I ask you to basically, I'm just going to put a penny in you and see how long you can go. Mm. Um, I never even heard of pinky violence as a subgenre. Okay. So I'm hoping that no matter what my thoughts on this particular movie are, that you'll you'll be able to give me and the listeners a little bit of wider context of what that actually means. But I diving into that subgenre and this being one of those categorized God, we love a category. Can't just have a mm. film in isolation or a series in isolation. <clears throat> gotta gotta categorize it. Um I I'd never heard of it before, and I must say, going forward, I think I will check some of them out because uh interesting. Very interesting. As I say, broadens the mind. Got to walk through the door, though. So before I do, though, Devils, do you want to give us a, a little bit of wider context on uh, mm. on Jailhouse 41? My my first viewing of uh, the film was, I guess it wasn't at, like an extremely formative time. I didn't watch it as a teenager. I came around to it a little later. But my first exposure to it was as a teenager through a series on Channel 5, which is called Out There. Mm. I don't know if anyone remembers this. It's like a compendium clip show of like cult cinema. Uh, I think it ran like maybe two or three seasons. I think it jumped between Channel 5 and Bravo. By the end of it, it was presented by Emily Booth, mm-hmm. uh, who is a bit of kind of uh, a cult figure in the UK. In the kind of... And um, essentially, it was really just that. It was like, um, like Tarrant on TV, except for fifteen-year-olds uh, who thought they were cool, but also wanted to perhaps see some films where people got their tops off. So it wasn't the deepest exploration. You're a trash for kind of cinephiles. Stuff. Yes, exactly. But it was my first exposure to a lot of stuff which I later came to love. So like uh, Russ Meyer, I mentioned on my Russ Meyer episode that that was mm-hmm. the first time I ever saw anything of Russ Meyer, and I was blown away by that. There was a clip of Vixen on an episode. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a kind of a really successful long-running series. Um, the story of Ricky... Ricky O, I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Mm. The jailhouse fight with uh, dudes literally punching lumps of meat out of each other. We, so we, was, we've uh, watched that together. Yes. <laughs> so um, and there was in, a, in the a, a, <laughs> Oh yes. Uh, so there was a, a clip from uh, from the the first movie, Female Prisoner Seven Hundred One, in that. Uh, and I remember which sequence it was. Uh, Galley, you'll know this because you've seen the first film as well. It's actually a really bizarre scene for them to pick. It's towards the end of the first film where the rest of the prisoners have turned on uh, Matsu, our lead character, Nami Matsushima, and they're kind of torturing her while she's tied up to a ceiling. And I remember thinking that this was like fucking bizarre. Like I'd never seen anything like that happen. I was found it kind of intense, maybe a little off-putting. So it wasn't until several years later that um, we'll talk about Quentin Tarantino later, but uh, a box set appeared in FOP. Um, maybe 13, 14 years ago, uh, heavily branded to cash in on the Kill Bill connection. It's this bright yellow and black packaging. Uh, Eureka Films put out a trilogy, which uh, is just the first three of the original run of films, uh, the ones directed by Shinya Ito. And I watched all of them and I loved them immediately and quite intensely, but it was the second film that was just like unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, and I guess when you mentioned stuff like, uh, uh, the genre that it sits in, um, 
probably the best way to, to to get into this a little more for our listeners, so I don't bore the shit out of them and you by listing a bunch of names of people that will just wash over. Um, we always try and pimp out our blog. I'm going to do it uh, up at the top of this episode because what I've done is I've written a bit of a primer. I, I hope, which kind of explains a little bit of the, the the era, what the late 60s and early 70s in Japanese cinema was like. Obviously, we'll discuss a bit together. But I think for, for anyone who's interested, if you want to go and have a look there, um, I've also linked out to a bunch of articles by people much more uh, um, familiar, smarter, and more educated than I am, which should hopefully give you a bit of a, a tenor of the times uh, and discuss the ways in which this film kind of sits within that sort of retrospectively classified genre of pinky violence and pinko cinema and the ways in which I guess I think it differs from it, perhaps even transcends it in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a film. It's, it's a very un, unusual film for, for us to do, but I really am just, I was, you know, there are, there is no uh, uh, lunchbox here. If there was a lunchbox, it would be a special limited edition Nami Matsushima lunchbox that I designed myself. In, so, in yellow uh, and black. Exactly. The sandwiches are out here. I, I think this is a phenomenal film and I was just really keen to share it with you guys. Um, uh, and also hope that maybe we could get a few more eyes onto this thing because it is, um, it is back out there in the kind of public consciousness. Uh, but perhaps there is such a deluge of titles, you know, especially through stuff like Arrow Video. There are so many kind of, you know, interesting things being unearthed and reconstructed in 4K and, I felt like I needed a bit of curation there. So when you mm. said this one specifically, that really helped me out to to yeah. have a bit of an in. Well, you need that though, Matt, right? I mean, and I'll take exception to what you said there, Devlin, about oh, this being a bit of an outlier. If you look back at all the films we've done, which we you know we're nearing a hundred, you know, we do we do go off the beaten path. As I say, the bounty yeah, of the celebration spots. I'm going to keep harping on about <laughs> it because right now that is topical in the UK. <laughs> Or a topic. A top- is a topic a in topic. there as well? I yeah, like a topic it. is. Yeah. I mean, you get rid of a topic, wouldn't you, really? But anyway. No, I'd rather have a topic than a bounty. Oh, I love a topic. Really? Yeah. yeah. I prefer the exotic coconut taste, but that's, that's <laughs> me. What I will say is we do this, right? And and this is one of the things that we want to do on the show, which is bring people and us, because here you are, you're dragging me into this new world that I'd never, ever experienced and likely would have never have, have have gotten into because as Matt Wright says, you need you need one film, normally one film, to give you that jumping on mm. point. But there was this idea of like Tarantino, we've mentioned him already. I was we were counting down until we did it. <laughs> but yeah. um, and we'll probably have a section on him later. But um for me it, I was an ideal candidate for this. So anyone who has seen Kill Bill, I'd just say right off the bat that you'll adore this and you'll see where a lot of things came from. I know there are there are a lot of other references that you can look at like lady snowblood and uh what was the other one devlin the, the the one that rips up there's like a topless it's on your blog there's a topless fight in the snow it looks just like the, oh um, okay uh bride yes. and uh um lucy uh, lou yeah yeah this is a uh, uh, toei studios uh, uh kind of great hope after uh meiko kaji stopped working for them was uh an actress called reiko ike and we will mm-hmm. talk about her another time i think because she has a very different slant on on the on the, the genre but um uh, that was uh uh yes um sex and fury right before we do before we have our, our broader discussion on uh on the film at hand patrick welcome back um story time but this time 
I mean, I don't know. Are you going to do it in Japanese? It might. I mean, I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try anything tough like that. Okay. I'm not as uh, smart as Devlin. Well, then, please remind us and the listeners of the plot to female prisoner scorpion, colon, jailhouse 41. Uh, women commit crimes because of men. Driven by love, hatred, and jealousy. Listen to my story of those seven sinful girls. Inspector Goda hates our eponymous hero, Prisoner Scorpion, also known as Matsu. He hates her for ruining his right eye and swears to drive her mad while she serves time locked up in solitary confinement. Despite promising her she can never go outside, today another senior inspector is visiting and all prisoners are put on parade. Matsu has whittled a spoon into a weapon unbeknownst to Goda and attacks him during the inspection, inciting a full-blown riot while senior inspector pisses his pants. The guards in their hats quickly control the prisoners in their flip-flops, and Goda orders the prisoners' punishment at an intensive labour camp. While the prisoners struggle in their conditions, Goda seeks to humiliate Matsu further still in front of all, tying her to a cross as were Christ, and ordering four guards to rape her in public view, in the hope to kill her legacy. While being raped, Matsu locks eyes with Goda, vengeance on her mind. Six prisoners are in the van back to the prison along with an exhausted Matsu. Oba, the angriest of them, amongst the others, turn on Matsu for the ignominy of her rape and beat on her. Thinking she's then dead, they alert the drivers who stop to inspect. The six prisoners, among with Matsu, attack and leave the guards dead by the road for Goda to see before fleeing for freedom. Can their journey now take them to freedom safely and avoid Goda in this world of sin and men? Flowing, a woman's tears pour, softly floating on the river. The river overflows, overflowing on the hill. Overflow, overflow. It will drown the men. It's good to have him back, isn't it? It is. It is. Lovely stuff. Oh, I hope that... Did you justice there, Devlin? You asked for a non-too plot-spoilery uh, synopsis today. Yeah, I guess that was um, because this is, I guess, a bit of a recommendation. So, as 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 awful as it might sound, you know, if anyone feels like they want to go into this film cold, I feel like perhaps I've hopefully gushed over it enough that they might want to go and check it out and then come back to us after they've seen it. But also, I mean, uh, I think honestly, given the Given the the type of film this is, and the sort of the 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 way the film plays out, that I think that context can also be useful either beforehand or or afterwards. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I wanted to give people a chance to, to to step off if they don't feel like they want to uh, hear the entire plot laid out for them. But I think a lot of the joys of this film come in not so much the plot and the plot mechanics, but in the viewing experience as a whole that is still. That, that was a very visual and poetic uh, synopsis, which is mm. quite accurate to the film. So good job. Absolutely. And Matt, we discussed in the last episode, I think I asked a question about does plot matter? You know, we don't need to go into that conversation again, but that's why I asked Evelyn why the second one, you know, do, mm. is it easy to go into a film in the second of a series if it's a through line story and yes it was for, for this one i found for plotting very uh whether 
it's a very visual film, yeah, but it's very mm. easy to pick up and you have this lead character and you crack on with her story. Well, I think we said on the um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme one um, that we did uh, about the revenge story and how it's one of the simplest but most effective and satisfying plots. You, you know, you don't mm. have to do too much with it. You just have to set it up and then and kind of execute it. Probably the first thing that um, I would like to ask then is that because you guys came to this one fresh you came into the second film in the series fresh the opening scene of this uh how did you feel that they'd set up a character like nami matsushima like uh what did you think of the way that they established her character well i immediately went to kill bill because the one of the first images was uh, was her digging with the spoon Mm. Uh, and uh the the kind of um relentless um, like dedication that that would take, you know, you, you sort of see elements of that in the bride and how, um, like getting out of the, getting out of the coffin in the second one, I'd sort of, that sprung to, to mind immediately. And wiggling um, your big toe. Matt. Wiggling your big toe. Yeah, exactly. Like right. this, this dedication of just doing something over and over and over in order to accomplish something. Uh, so that was an immediate in. It was the eye contact, Devlin, that was so mm. striking. Yeah. You know, immediately. I didn't even see it really as breaking the fourth wall as more of just searching into the audience's soul for some empathy and like, mm. look, look at me, look who I am. I don't deserve to be here. And I was immediately in with this character and wondering well, what the hell we was talked going about on. that on, uh, well, you did on the silence of the lambs with Demi where mm. he's, his staging is all like where she's looking directly into the lens and we're sort of seeing this man's world through, through her perspective I and mean, there's a lot of pov stuff going on and they had certain rules that him and tak fujimoto uh, applied to that and that there's a similar thing going on here um that the song was an immediate in as well because that was a that's a kill bill um yeah oh, i'm glad thing. it was i haven't seen the film in years matt yeah um but i was like i'm positive that i've heard this song before and i just yeah. couldn't pick, I, I figured it was kill bill but i wasn't sure and i wasn't willing to go back and rewatch them like the music even reminded me of Tarantino's use of a song in, I think it's Django Unchained as well. Yeah, there, there was a lot of, particularly with the prisoners, um, like the musical montages of the prisoners here felt a lot like Django. But Dev's, I think Dev's letterbox review, um, which you should check out as well. Um, you talked about her song of vengeance, which was mm. Urami Bushi, uh, yeah. which plays like That's- intermittently throughout the whole thing which which she is actually singing is that right she is yeah um the, and uh, the song is written by uh shunya ito the director um uh there's a f- there's a fascinating article that i found that's linked in the in the blog um if you go down to the make or kaji section um first of all i put a spotify playlist of my favorite songs of hers because she was a recording artist for a couple of years throughout the kind of early 70s it was actually really common for actresses to record the theme songs for the films in this era uh, and they would be released on, uh, as singles um Meiko kaji stuff has this amazing kind of uh it's somewhere between psychedelic fuzz and almost mariachi influence stuff in places. There's, you can definitely feel the influence of the Italian exploitation, especially the spaghetti Western scores, I think, which I think is, is great. But there's an, uh, uh an interview with Meiko Kaji from, from this year where she talks about how she recorded the songs and she wasn't a trained singer. Um, and she was reluctant to sing at all because she didn't feel like she had a particularly good voice, but the Japanese star system, the way that it was set up was that, 
in the early days, especially through the, the, the 60s, it was a very much a conveyor belt system. You were kind of plugged into stuff. You were a contract player. You have to kind of imagine the Japanese film industry as akin to the kind of golden age of Hollywood. Was that from the Toei Company or? Yes. Yeah. So she was previously contracted at Nikatsu, which is, is this part of the big fours. Yes. Yeah. So uh, in Japan, they didn't have an equivalent of the Paramount decision that kind of, you know, in the 40s and late 40s that the, the monopoly in America was broken up. You couldn't be a film production company and the owner of a theater chain anymore. So um, so it allowed for independent producers to kind of get a little, get an inroad into the industry, but Japan remained really tightly controlled. So Toei Studios would would produce material very, very quickly. And they would have contract directors, contract stars, uh, and that's what Kaji was. And um, uh, these films are made incredibly quickly. This uh, the second film in the series was released barely four months after the first film was in cinemas. So you're talking from scripting to uh, production to post production in uh, in 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 less than four months. Oh, uh, probably what? way less than four months. And you said a 30-day shoot? I would need to, to check on the, the duration of the shoot for this one, but it was not uncommon for films to shoot in two weeks. The statistics are impressive, but if you look at the quality of the film, that's the other thing. You can mm. To finish anything in that time is, is an achievement, but to get some of these shots, it's... Yeah. I still don't know how they Even did it. Even a 30-day shoot, though, for a, a 90-minute film is um, mm. just the shoot alone. Yeah. What I love about this one and and the other films in the series and and having watched a few of them is that you can tell right away that this is Ito's first and second films as a director um which is also pretty extraordinary to have your first and second films come out in barely a quarter of a year and um and for them to be this intense and different i feel that there's there's a great deal of visual difference between the two even though there's a lot that carries on this film is is so much i think uh bigger and more spacious than the first um but what i love is that when you put people within a system you still have these kind of maverick eyes so it is just that i think shunya ito himself pushed this one so much further than perhaps other directors would have done given the material they've got um you had a lot of capable directors I think the training was really intense. Uh, you were an assistant for a very long time. He was an assistant from the mid sixties onwards and he was working with directors like a guy called Teruro Ishii. He worked under him seven times. And I think that, um, you can feel the influence of these earlier directors. Teruro Ishii is a kind of, um, almost hallucinogenic director. Um, he's, he's very strange imagery. He's, uh, uh very influenced by, uh, forms of Japanese theater, very unusual form of Japanese theater called buto, which is this, uh, bizarre kind of very exaggerated physical movement theater, uh, highly unrealistic, lots of very theatrical lighting. And I think that now that you've seen this, I'm sure you could probably see, uh, where that filters down into Shonya Ito's thinking. So, um, I like what you were saying, Gary, about like, you know, that it's, it, it could be a, a sausage factory, but you know, if you're in that system, you what you do have is you have the training you have the the knowledge and the skills of the technicians around you who are all extraordinarily well drilled and if you've got that kind of fire to make something that's so much kind of deeper and and, and richer than the stuff that's around you it's you know 
it speaks to a system working, doesn't it? That's what it is. Mm. I mean, we, we're not going to get into a kind of look at modern day versus, versus the Japanese system back in the sixties and seventies. But if you, you're able to cultivate an environment where individuals can express themselves, make mistakes, learn mm. the, the, the one, the key is make mistakes. So if he's been an assistant yeah. seven times, he's seen other people do things. Well, he was an assistant just to, just to Ishii seven times. He was probably working on maybe 30, 40 films in that. You've span. got to, you, you take all of that wealth of experience and you've also got the fire in the belly. He was a, a, a pretty driven guy. There's some interviews with him on the Blu-rays, which I would recommend because uh, he's, he's a pretty fascinating guy to listen to. Um, uh, he had said to the studio that if he didn't get to direct film by the time he was 30, he was going to quit and set his own company up. Um, he was also, um, yeah. uh, a, a very fierce union man as well. He was very, um, uh, involved in in the uh, assistant director's union, and he basically bullied his way into the job to an extent, uh, which is kind of fascinating. At one point, he had to accost the actual head of the studio in a a hotel lobby to um, to force him to release the first film because it was in danger of being shelved, and he was called a shameful man. <laughs> but uh, it, the ploy worked. Because do you know, um, Devlin, why this story and why? He made these films and with this character. Vengeance films were quite prominent then. But it's a novel too, right? Yeah, it's a, a manga. It's a, uh, a, a series of comics, series of adult comics, um, which I've not read. I've, I've found it very difficult to find uh, um, the original comics. Um, you can still find them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, first reference because it is a a studio work so he had previously worked with Teruo Ishii on a series of films called Abashiri Prison which were very very successful Uh, he was obviously being kind of touted as a potential talent who they and he was threatening to leave if they didn't give him a film so they they did give him this as an adaptation the script was already finished and he went to the two writers uh, and said that um he didn't want to make a prison movie because he felt the Abashiri prison films already said anything he wanted to say about prison. He wasn't interested, but that he had an idea of creating essentially this like super heightened, again, very allegorical, very, uh, he called it a, a fiction within a fiction. Essentially, he wanted to create something that kind of exists in a, a time and space all of its own. No kind of, well, there is, you know, there's obviously grit and texture to it, but. He was very happy to go very big and very um, almost folktale. So they ripped up the script and rewrote it in in a matter of days, um, right before filming. Uh, Also, Meiko Kaji was attached to the film because, again, she's a contract player. So she basically has to, she kind of has to take the roles that they have. But again, uh, uh, she wasn't exactly particularly docile. She um, left Nikatsu Studio because she felt that they were getting too... Uh, wrapped up in sex films and she did not want that for herself and uh, she's pretty headstrong so she decided to leave um and move over to toei um and this was what she was offered she had huge battles with the producers she felt that they were going to try and make them more sexual in focus which is kind of how the pinkered cinema works essentially you get your budget because you're willing to show female nudity let's say six times across the film it's like contractually obligated nudity is that that's what pinku film i I don't know like galley said pinky Mm. and pinku i I don't know there's there are kind of yeah it's there are kind of various these are all kind of like rules that 
you know, writers will reasonably enough kind of retroactively put on them. But uh, in Nikatsu, they had a, a system called the Roman porno system. They used to make these incredible Yakuza gangster films and stuff, really heavily influenced by um, lots of cool European cinema as well. Uh, Yasuhara Hasabe got his start over there and um, Seijin Suzuki was doing amazing stuff in the late 60s. But uh, the the money just wasn't there. TV was draining the audience just like it was in the States. Um, and Nikatsu at least felt that the best way to do it was to show stuff you can't see <laughs> at home. And what you can't see at home is is nudity. So they had a series and it was called Roman Porno and they basically closed down all their other like B-movie divisions and focused all their energies on this stuff. And yeah, it's essentially softcore pornography. I wanted to go back to her and her performance. And in fact, it goes for all the performance. And this might be a lazy Western viewpoint, but it's mine and I've not been able to shake it. Whenever I watch foreign cinema, I immediately pretty much take the actors at face value that they're good actors because I don't have that verbal communication to kind mm. of... Um, how's the best way of putting it? I can like, you can pick up on people's cadences when they're acting because they're like, ooh, that was bad. I think we've done it before with line readings where, um, mm. you know, Patrick's got some absolute zingers where it's like, <laughs> ooh, Jesus Christ, acting. Like in the, in the net. You didn't get the disc. I don't recognize bad performances, but I recognize really good ones in non-verbal communication. And mm. this is why you should always watch it in its original language and not dance yes. because you get the true actor's performance. Absolutely. And her performance in this, gestures, looks, wow, super powerful. Like she barely says anything. And the reason why I wrote Spaghetti Westerns, in particular, I was thinking about Once Upon a Time in the West. I was thinking, right, mm. Charles Bronson, We've seen him later, Bronson, do not such good work, but hilarious in The Death Wishes. He's great in that movie. He barely has any lines in it because mm. it's all looks, it's all gestures. And Sergio Leone, the way he shoots, amplifies. So everyone's working together. I found the same thing in this where I really, hence why the plot being so, so sort of threadbare didn't bother me whatsoever because I was getting all the communication through the staging, the direction, and the performances and in particular her because she is the standout because i think she's just the most captivating on screen yeah. any time she's on it there, there was a, a tie in there because like she was singing the song but she doesn't actually speak a line of dialogue until much later so she is very much the man with no name from from the spaghetti westerns and um there was also a weird link there because the kill bill was reviewed on Newsnight quite infamously uh, and commode Ian Hislop and Mark Lawson, the host, all hated it and they, they trashed it. And you can, you can find it on YouTube very easily. But there was an African American feminist author called Bonnie Greer. And we, we seemed, and she was the only one who seemed to understand that Uma Thurman was the man with no name. He was Clint Eastwood in the Spaghetti Westerns. And that seems to be sort of inherently tied between that film, uh, between Kill Bill and this one. It's, it seems like they were sort of gunning for the same. Uh, thing. Funny you should say that because I, and this is where Devlin, I don't know a great deal about Japanese cinema and, and I'm going to hands up. I don't really, really know a great deal about religion in Japan, but I found Christian parables littered throughout. Um, and my reading, maybe it's just because of, you know, Westerner with, uh, Catholicism, Christianity, uh, ran through my, uh, sort of childhood. I was seeing lots of Jesus parables. You know, it wasn't just like 
Matsu on a stick in the back, but it was also like the power of on a stick. Like an, 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 an individual. <laughs> I know. Oh, two sticks maybe. Okay. Yeah. I'll be, be generous. It is <laughs> Christmas. Um, but you know, I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking about all of that and it was, and actually I felt it tracked, you know, for example, in, in Patrick's story time, when he's talking about, um, the nemesis's idea of, of removing the power as her as a symbol of rebellion. All of that kind of worked for me. It was like, well, she is the carrier of all of our sins in this world. As you say, a story, a fiction within a fiction. I was thinking like, if we take all these characters and we make them like as a macro, so they're Japanese society. And I was reading lots of all that stuff in the movie. I might have been over reading, but I felt like the movie was, was giving me that. I can see that. But back to Dev, what Dev said about the introduction and the film's opening, I, I liked it immediately because I'm really into films like Cuckoo's Nest and Cool Hand Luke and Scum and all of these, where the politics of figuring out how you exist in a place like this. Uh, and it's a really great opportunity for a character study. So in, immediately with the wardens and the prisoners and all of these things, I, I was immediately locked in there. And there's always a daddy, isn't there? There's always like Ray Winston's the daddy now. And then you've got to figure it out how to exist somewhere like that. And the other, the other thread that we could pull a bit is first blood, which I'm sure they must have seen this film because there, there's so many links to the first Rambo film, all the stuff in the cell with the, um, with the hose. And then later on where they're kind of escaping into the, into the wilderness and they're being pursued. So I, I felt like that there was a lot of, um, links into, to films that I just happened to have seen that, that helped hook me into this one from the beginning. It's cool to, um, to meet your protagonist in, in a state of, you know, like a dire straits situation, not money for nothing. Um, where, you know, you, you meet your protagonist, uh, uh, being essentially beaten under the cush under the under the boot of authority and the way that like a cool hand look the way that they maintain their uh their composure and the, their defiance and watching her whittle a spoon away over probably the course of an entire year i i've always sort of i always try to think of what what is a character doing when we first meet them because i heard it in screenwriting literature and what could you say that, that would be would be more effective than her digging with her teeth with a spoon, you know, that tells you everything about, um, her, her situation visually as well, which is just also during the punishment, um, yeah. when she's raped by the four guards, she, oh, she bites one of them. So, you know, the mm. fight's not, not ended from her, but her locking eyes onto Goda was particularly powerful for me and says a mm. lot about her and her resolve and, yeah. you know, she won't be beaten by this. The scene then reflecting in, in his blacked out mm. lens in his glasses as oh, that's well. Oh, yeah. Amazing shot. That, oh, that's the, cool. Uh, and Luke too. Yeah. yeah. With the reflective glasses. Cool. And Luke 2, the sequel. Cool. And Luke 2, electric boogaloo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, um, uh, I guess one, one of the quick thing about the, um, the influence of spaghetti westerns. Um, the first film, they have these very bold blue and white prison outfits, which you do see throughout the, the, the film here but not very often. Instead, what they put them in is this kind of shapeless gray smocks, which always just makes me think of like the kind of ponchos that they were wearing in the spaghetti mm. westerns. Mm. And also her relationship with Oba kind of makes me think of um, Eli Wallach in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And and these uneasy alliances and, you know, the, the contrast between your stoic uh, hero 
and this wild card, this kind of slightly grotesque character as well. Um, but yeah, the, um, the, the Christian allegory of, uh, uh, martyring herself was, was, yeah. What I found fascinating though with this, and this is why I love being introduced to things that I, I really are out of my kind of wheelhouse and certainly out of my, um, normal swim lane is that perspective was a thing that I was really interested in. And I was thinking about those spaghetti westerns and thinking about how that's like West meeting Europe. And here we've got a movie which is like East meeting West via Europe, which I was like, well, here mm. we go. We've got all these cultural influences. They're all being kind of meshed together. Office reference, melting pot. And, and, <laughs> and then we are literally watching something where I do not know what Japan was like in the 70s. I also don't know exactly... Um, whether we're refer referring to World War Two times, war crimes, etc., all that kind of stuff. I think I am. I'm watching stuff, but the way that um, the director and the story is being told through this revenge plot, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm getting like a history lesson in Japan. And what I enjoyed the most was that there was nuance in in every every group, apart from maybe the gods. The gods representing the state. I felt like they are quite clear, but everyone else, there's conflicts, there's contradictions, you know, there's faults. Um, so when we meet, uh, later, um, I hate to jump straight ahead to the near the ending, but when we meet the group of tourists, it reminded me a little bit of, of Romper Stomper. I don't remember when we had the conversation, Romper Stomper, oh, we were like, okay. well, you know, there's, um, there's clearly like a, a point of view that the director wants us to kind of lock into. And we, I think we all said, like, we felt the director was a really skilled director. We just didn't necessarily agree with his worldview. In this, I don't know necessarily how to feel about the worldview, but I kind of got, it made me ask questions about what, are, what am I seeing and why is it important? You know, I was thinking about, like, how do we define criminals? Criminals break the law, but who sets the laws and what laws mm. do we deem as criminal acts and what do what do we deem as not being criminal yeah i mean i mean i didn't tend to think about it politically i'm i'm a bit deaf that way i i don't really see things in i've seen things more in human terms so i every, every time it was like that i thought it was just a different depiction of men and what men feel like they can get away with in different situations whether it's within the prison or whether it's these kind of innocent silly looking sightseers that that turns into this horrible rape sequence because just because they think they can get away with it and then it goes one step further and they actually kill her and uh it, it seemed to be that, that was the, the feminism and the the perspective of the filmmaker again but um again i'm i'm hopeless when it comes to to political reading so i'm uh, dev you mentioned in your i think it was your review or your blog about the post-war uh, hmm. nature of, of some of the wilderness scenes where you'd see a pylon that's buried in ash or you'd see a, a an, an old bicycle or something like that and there's remnants of perhaps you know um one of the bombs yeah um and you, so, you're still um you're still in occ occupied japan right this is you know they're still under essentially foreign occupation at this point and um this is only a couple of years after what the um the 10-year uh anpo protests there were a huge amount of protests and civil unrest in Japan in 1960 and again in 1970 uh, with a ratification of the uh, the treaty with the Americans, the, the non-aggression pact, essentially. 
um, it was uh, uh, fiercely opposed by a number of groups, uh, in some cases right-wing nationalist groups, because they didn't feel that Japan should be surrendering its arms to a foreign nation, that it was undermining the sense of, you know, any Japanese pride. And But also left-wing groups would oppose it because they felt that they weren't free to um, to, to shape their country in the way that they saw fit. So uh, Ito came very much down on the on the left-wing side of the protests, which is almost anarchistic in in viewpoint um but there's an explicit reference within the bus where you have the older gentleman in the red uh blazer talking about the the great time he had in china and even mentioning something like that in a japanese film is really controversial because a lot of japanese society do not like to admit the amount of uh, war crimes that were committed throughout the Second World War, especially in, if you look up stuff like the rape of Nanking, this is, uh, essentially, um, sexual violence was employed as a tool of warfare, uh, throughout the 1940s. And yeah, between Korea and Japan, there's, there's still that, that, that refusal for the Japanese government to even acknowledge that certain things happened has, as it's become, uh, that the two countries are completely split and the kids here if you, you teach i teach korean kids and they say oh bad japan bad japan is just ingrained into them because so interesting though matt isn't it because oversimplification but you know i'd always look at japan as being quite genial you know quite affable very respectful and obviously this film challenges that and you know just to go back to your point about you know I, I, it's not necessarily about politics but i didn't i didn't see it as just as as clean as just these guys who can get away with it Mm. I was thinking more about, like, yes, they can get away with it, but they're one step away from being the criminals that they're attacking. But then yeah. the criminals who we, our sympathies are are kind of with, for the majority of the movie, then not only just turn on each other, but they turn on the women on the bus who their biggest crime has been that they were, what, complicit or they didn't stand up. So there was that's what I meant by... The bus is fascinating because it's the first time we see outsiders compared to guards and prisoners. So we see free people. And Oba says, the, the passengers think they're different to us. Let's show them how wrong they are. And I think that's a clear statement that it, you know, it's, it's I don't know, human nature. It's it's all in it together. That, and the, the she calls... Like Devlin mentioned, that guy there who's recalling a great time he had raping someone at gunpoint and feel the bag on his back. And when he's got the gun pointed at him, he completely crumbles. You know, they are holding up a mirror here to the people. And on that kind of imagery, like post-war, there's the mirror in the, is it the old woman's shack? And they dig that out of some sort of ash or snow. I can't quite recall. And that's like another remnant and that's their mirror to, I, I saw a lot of kind of facing up to the world and them looking at themselves and Oba can't look at herself and smashes the mirror, but can look at the people and face it. And that's her control is to put it back on people. And yeah, that's the women as well, Matt. And whether there's a political thing there that she's been embarrassed and Matsy's been embarrassed. I know that like they, they, what do they say to her as well? Like acting like a dog in front of everyone, shameless. And they do that to the women on the bus. And you see the women laughing along to the old guy's stories about the rape and the gun as well. You see them on the periphery laughing to the story and it's a societal thing. And I think that is the director certainly having the voice to say, 
people are complicit in in all your actions and the people that are trying to control all of them is the state you know and it reminded me a little bit of you know we've already mentioned the the huge cultural crossover which was battle royale and i again i saw lots of that where you've got state intervention trying to oppress rebellion oppress Mm -hmm. that kind of ugly side and portray a you know the whole prison um inspector stuff that is all about putting your best foot forward isn't it you know and how we we, yeah well old pissy pat i think there was a bit of poo poo in there but (laughs) that was just me um, it might. No, no, been... I'm, I'm with you there, Gally. I, 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 I think. I think he's the one of the panel is split as to whether yeah. he shit himself. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole idea that um, you know, if somebody of, of great importance uh, comes into any space, it's listen. Forget about all the foibles, all the issues. Just um, make sure mm. that we portray uh, a slightly false. Yeah. projection of what is actually going on mm. the guileless uh upper class cluelessness is like that goes across all generations and on all nationalities is exactly what it's like if fucking prince edward turns up at your workplace or whatever you know it's like pat on the shoulder little platitude i have no idea what's going on around me and as soon as as soon as he's confronted with real violence he's the i love the shot after she lashes out with the spoon and she almost takes Goda's other eye how long they keep that wide shot of everyone oh, yeah. in a completely still yeah. life tableau until he is the first, he drops his little stick and then he crumbles to the floor. It's like, I just, uh, yeah, I love the. There's, the, there's a lot of that, um, static stuff. It felt like quite photographic, uh, in, in a still sense, a lot of the time, the composition of it. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of that scattered through. Shall we, uh, talk about, um, what I'm going to refer to just to help the listeners visualize? The Conan the Barbarian sequence, if it went on as a surreal dream, Lynchian style. Um, Hopefully you you understand what I'm referring to. It's when Conan gets with the witch and then chucks her in the fire. Uh, That doesn't happen here. (laughs) I thought it always had kind of the qualities of a dream but and a nightmare too. And it was like that glowing death of the old woman I've written and uh, the brightly colored autumnal leaves blowing in the wind. All all of where you're not quite sure where the line is. I, and I liked it. I mean, Dev, you, you, I think you posed the question of how, whether, whether we like it when films get surreal. And it just depends, doesn't it? It depends, uh, on the filmmaker. Yeah. That old woman for me is the survivor and she's mm. the survivor with a knife and the knife is the yeah. passing on to the survival. Is she a survivor of like a historical mistreatment of women well, as well? Well, is, is that I think it's everything. Doing? Yeah. I think it's everything the film's depicting and it's up for. Mm. Uh, conversation and debate but my reading was that there's um because it leads on to the next dream sequence with the fisherman's nets and all the prisoners yeah. get trapped under there but matsu's the one who breaks free and is the survivor and she rips it open whereas the others are shackled and chained um you know that they i call them helpless in that situation and uh, maybe accepting their fate under the nets, even over the angriest and, and kind of the most kind of capable of, of them with a gun. Um, Cause she's the first one to get netted. And I think that's, you know, the first domino falls that the rest of them do, but that knife is the, the stalwart, um, the, the symbol of hope and survival with the old woman. And, you know, her disappearing in the leaves and this earthly kind of transcendence is 
interesting. I think it helps the case that she's this ancient ghostly apparition because it sort of represents that it overhangs. It's an ancient thing. How how far that that the, but, the but themes she of the film is the same kind of concerns that the women do. You know, when she introduces the women, says the first woman, this is her story. The old woman says, "I forgive me if I'm wrong, but like I need to find my children, or I need to." She's yeah. When she's muttering to herself, and she's it's it's interesting that she is wearing like the blanket, not dissimilar to theirs, and she's still clutching the knife. And the only thing keeping her alive is that, and it's like I will kill them. And that's uh, it. That thank you. Yeah, and it's like I will get them. And it's it's Oba does the same right at the end of the film as well. It's like it's like the fight is all that's keeping people alive in a way. Is there not an argument that it's her? Um kind of uh imagining as well that it, it, it's on the bus right it's it's matsu's mm. perspective so yeah there's this there's uh the second dream sequences uh begins when they have taken the bus passengers uh, uh hostage and Oba is making them do the banzai chant yeah. and uh the they the sequence they go into a tunnel and the sequence becomes increasingly Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory. Increasingly, yeah. At first, you just see there's a great shot of just Matsu's face uh, uh, reflected in two different mirrors, and then she turns. I love the way they they bring up lights yeah, within yeah. the shot. That's such a ballsy thing to do. It's, but it's also like, how they isolate it on the face, and everything's blue behind them. And that's all fascinating. But the way the bus passengers turn into the jury of their own conviction for the six prisoners was. Again, quite telling of the political element of, of the, the, what they're saying about public perception of prisoners and, you know, that they should, human nature is one and the same. But there's a graphic shot of her eye with a red highlight on her hair and it's all very striking. The fact that we know that these people are like rapists and murderers and yet they get to stand as the, yeah. as the jury of their peers over them and the way they just drift away, the oh, jury box drifts away amazing. into the darkness. I've written that it's expressionistic in the sense that um, what we're seeing is not real, but we, we are seeing it through a perspective of a character. So although it may not be literal, like not a point of view, but it's as Matsu hears it, as she sees it, sees it and as she experiences it. And that stuff really puts you in the mind of a character. And that's why I think Taxi Driver, for example, works. We're viewing everything through the perspective of Travis and it's the same with Matsu. And the, the when when Taxi Driver gets weird, it doesn't quite go to this Willy Wonka magical mystery tour level of you know surrealness, but uh, it gets weird in places. And the way we view characters is informed by the character study of of the film. So it, as weird as it gets, it is all coming from a character yeah. dr- driven. It's, it's Matsu's um, Matsu's perception of Ober's suicide was interesting to me as well because i couldn't put my finger on that her relationship's obviously fraught with over over being Mm. the antagonist to her in that group but is she well that's some of the most interesting stuff because the the, the women fight each other too and in a feminist film you'd, you'd kind of think that it would be the opposite but it's probably true to life that women are sometimes their own worst enemies like women battle other women and and yeah especially under a system that doesn't uh that doesn't allow you know that's constantly uh um you know they always say that like uh, uh patriarchy affects everyone and mm. it, it pits men against men and it pits women against women and it especially pits men against women and right 
that yeah if you've if you've been subject to a brutal system in which you have absolutely no power the the beating of matsu in the back of the prison truck just makes me think of you know she was the one spark of hope she was supposed to be the you know the the strongest of them the one they couldn't break mm-hmm. and when they saw that happening to her the fury with which they turned on them was essentially like venting their own helplessness Mm-hmm. And that, so they they have to treat her as a scapegoat, like a, a, like a martyr. Really, well, we're know. back to religion again, Gali. I think you might. Be I, right I think uh, uh, I think that I think that's the influence of, of of European cinema more than it is the actual influence of Christianity. I think that the you know the, the director's smart enough to to understand the symbolism of it. Oh, it's universal, isn't it? I'm just saying that again from from a Western perspective that's that's grown grown up in a you know a quite a Catholic or Christian upbringing you can't escape the idea that some of this imagery is you know recognizable even the fisherman galley in that dream with the fishing nets is is quite you could read into that if we want yeah absolutely and and the the you know what matt's saying there about um the the prisoners uh as women turning on each other that's again what i appreciated is that this doesn't feel like we're going to give you half a perspective we're going to you know this director is going to show you everything everybody's got faults everybody's got there is no right and wrong i mean obviously matsu is our is our protagonist it's who we're following but her her vengeance story is really you know one of the outside of being caught the key drivers of the narrative but the fact that the movie is allowed to kind of spend time with the other prison and they become fully fleshed characters, even though I, you know, I'll be honest, I can't remember any of their names as characters, as I'm watching them interact, I feel like I'm getting an authentic depiction. I'm what I'm not getting is in an agenda. You know, we've, we've talked about it before with, with certain um, social, political and cultural issues when they're brought to the fore in, in, cinema now there tends to be a kind of an unwillingness to show both sides because it it can get dangerous it can get misinterpreted i like the fact that this kind of shows shows everyone authentically and we're left we're left as a viewer to make our own decisions about who's not who's right or wrong but the nuances between there's an interconnected intensity to what's being presented on screen as in with the immediate character dynamics are really intense and the messaging that he's putting into the film is also extremely intense but that the form the content and the subtext are all kind of in unison they're all working together there's no elements fighting against each other really which i think marks it out against other films of the type and i think that there's something in the kind of you know, they always come up with the phrase like, you couldn't do this anymore. And often they, they tend to mean like, you couldn't do this anymore because some spoil sport has ruined my fun. But usually that means that, you know, some spoil sport has come in and told me I can't make fun of people who have less cultural capital than I do. Uh, whereas this does come under that category of like, um, there's, there's stuff they show on screen that's extremely dark and extremely harsh. And yet it's all presented um, at times with a kind of almost comic book or it's extremely heightened pop art sensibility. And probably the tendency now would be to pull everything down and flatten everything out and make everything extremely grim and gritty. And in doing so, I think that you, you rob yourself of the ability to explore artistically these really thorny subjects 
because you have to categorize them under this is an extremely important thing to talk about. And yeah, what you'd have to Trojan does, horse it instead, wouldn't you? You'd have to sneak it in. Everyone gets really careful. Everyone gets really second guessing. And you can't second guess on a film that you're turning out in less than a month. Like you just, no. Uh, no. You just can't. You follow your, your instincts. Let's talk about the use of, uh, and I assume this is wide ranging in the pinky violence or pinku um, subgenre, but the use of sexual and physical violence normally against women. Lots and lots of discussions um, of late in Western cinema about the use of it, a cheap ploy. In revenge plots in particular, tends to be like the go-to. I'm thinking about like pretty egregious examples like uh, I Spit on Your Grave. It's a rape revenge genre, a subgenre, isn't it? And when you when you look up like I Spit on Your Grave, I had no idea. I looked this up the other day just to kind of get some context here. They have been churning those films out ever since that first one it's really prurient and also like you know it's one thing to say something like uh wes craven had an artistic point that he wanted to make in last house on the left Mm. which is a fair statement to say i do not believe that the 19th cheap italian knockoff that came out three years later has the same like artistic yeah, who are the audiences em- for these things and I mean, empathy worrying. at some point it is really prurient and yet japanese cinema does have a, a a real when you start getting into pinku and pinky violence there is a lot of rapist titillation which is i mean that's that that is you really uh uh going off off the reservation a little there and, and italian cinema has a similar thing and american cinema has uh some of it even going back to the ross meyer stuff some of his later films have some scenes where i just absolutely 100% cannot defend it um uh there's something about the way um Shunya Ito treats it that to me just feels so different it's so rooted in empathy in the first film he puts you underneath Matsu while she's being attacked under a plastic like a glass floor so it's and and all the men are looming over her and it's like we're trapped underneath her while she's trapped underneath these men. And it's, it's you know, it's a real, like, radical kind of empathy. I mean, it's, I understand that there, there will quite reasonably be a lot of people that won't want to watch a film that has this as a subject matter. And that's, of course, completely... But have we even, um, like, said that this is a male director? And mm, I was quite surprised A completely male creative that. team. Yeah. And I think even something so simple in that time as both rape scenes in here we don't get titillation or nudity it's hard facts and it's blood and in your face and close up and it 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 screams and it's kind of exactly what it, it should be which is very deeply uncomfortable and deplorable and shot in such a manner the the exposed nature um and exposed nudity in this film is it's the two uh, prisoners who are I don't know enjoying some freedom in the cabin together, but then Ober, you know, when she points the finger at the the passengers on the bus and exposing the two women and the men and prodding a gun and that old guy's dick as well. It's they obviously ha- has the agenda in this film is just yeah, to, it's such to, an inversion yeah. of what you would usually expect to see in something well, like this. When some films do it, it, it's it seemed to me like it needs to be a harsh act to justify like juicing up the finale, and and the revenge needs to be satisfying. So 
uh, the, the recourse can only be as powerful as the act that triggers it. So I think that's maybe why they go for rape, because it is the most abhorrent thing you can think of. Like a rape murder is the worst thing possible. So that's what these films lean into. Um, that this one, I, I agreed with everything you said there. I think it's tackled completely differently. Um, you asked about egregious examples. And the first one that leaps out is Straw Dogs that I saw recently, which is a really, uh, it, it's the most interesting rape ever put on film because, you know, S Susan George is being raped by a, a man uh, who she had a previous uh, sexual encounter with when she was younger. And uh, halfway through the rape, she begins to physically enjoy it. And Peckinpah is really kind of, pushing things with that but then it turns into a second rape where another one of the yokels comes in and um is uh it becomes engaged in in the rape and there's there's a three-person situation going on and she absolutely resists it and they continue to rape her so the it, it can be used in um in egregious ways and but all but also like really challenging challenging ways but it, but it's if it's not deftly handled and delicately handled by an intelligent filmmaker you're really gonna you're gonna run the, act, the act as well matt needs to have meaning beyond the act itself Does that makes sense yes. you can't yes yeah problem is when it becomes throwaway and just a shortcut to we need the audiences and we need the character to move to a different space mm. like well, then I had that's one... when it that's when it becomes a cheap ploy and I think, you know, you we see it a lot in, like I say, these kind of trashy sequels of films that would themselves were trash. You know, I, I Spit in Your Grave, Last House on the Left, they've all had modern updated remakes. I've seen Last House on the Left and I've seen I Spit in Your Grave. And the reason, the only reason I wanted to watch them is because Mark Camot got so agitated about them. I thought, well, I'm going to have to watch this thing that's clearly mm -hmm. got this uh, this critic who I respect so agitated let's watch it and i wouldn't have got so agitated because they're so fucking shit and pointless and you're right who is it really for because the act itself in those movies has no real meaning if you want to strip that out you can we could talk about deliverance where it's a male-on-male -male rape that triggers the the narrative and the action that that follows it so that's not there to be titillating you know bless Ned Beatty, but there's, there's really nothing going on in that, in that scene that anyone's going to want to look at in a sexual way. I'm sure. Um, the, the, the other one that, that came to mind was blue Valentine, which isn't strictly a rape, but it's, it's a, it's a hundred percent, a character revealing action from both characters. And it's, uh, it, it's done in a way that no other scene could quite accomplish what they managed to do in that scene again it's not sexual it's not titillating and it's very uncomfortable to watch but it's character based and i think if it's coming from the right place and the the, the writer or director filmmakers are, are doing it for the right reason i think it's uh it's something that can can exist in cinema and, and be very um I, I hate to put us on the spot because i can't think of any examples but of something done badly and poorly no. and not having a place Basic Instinct with the uh, Michael, second Michael yeah, Douglas right. one was, was quite tricky mm. for us to talk yeah, about. Um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that is sexual. And, uh, and yeah. particularly as, as a younger man, I didn't quite, um, detect how, how, um, 
kind of disgraceful that act is because we, we narrowed it down to it's an alcoholic man date raping his his ex but if you look at it in the in the context of, a, of an erotic thriller it's quite a sexual scene and uh so i would maybe put that one forward yeah yeah i think i think that's that's really fair like um and that's a case where you know verhoven is a provocateur and joe esther has strikes me as a man who uh uh has possibly some some i don't know very unusual there's there's a um a scene in up ross meyer's up where um one of one of the scenes in there where uh, an extremely buxom uh actress is um is 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 attacked for a very long time and is played both seemingly for laughs and also like eroticism because you know ross meyer finds her attractive and it's not something that he did earlier in his films but it is something he did later and he always had that in the locker well, um, that, that's why verhoven's a problem as well because he is putting other scenes in that are intended to be sexy yes and that really muddies the waters um uh it's uh, just just in in japanese terms yasuhara hasabe uh went on to direct the fourth of these films um he's a very prolific director um i i do like some of his early stuff he has some fantastic um uh early gangster films over at nikatsu um but uh in the middle to late seventies, he started working back at Nikatsu in the Roman porno genre. And here's oh. just some of the titles. Here's five titles he did in a row. Uh, these are the, the full titles of these films. Rape, Assault, Jack the Ripper, Rape, 13th Hour, Secret Honeymoon, Rape Train, and Attacked. Is that Rape colon Jack the Ripper? Not rape, Jack uh, the Ripper. Ass, ass, assault! Exclamation mark! Jack the Ripper. Like okay. we're talking like the uh, uh, some of the later stuff. Just was. This is why I mean when I say that I, I think that there's something in in what Shinya Ito is doing that is really subversive. Even yeah, though he's doing it quite early in the subgenre, mm. it's like he could see the way the wind was going. It's very telling that Ito doesn't direct again after these films for a very long time, considering he's so prolific early in his career. He takes a three year break before he comes back with another film and maybe direct only another handful of films he's still alive today but um he walked away from from toei I f it feels like he said everything he wanted to say in these three films which is really fascinating well it speaks to devlin like all genres that um they'll not they'll be pioneers that push the boundaries and then there'll be imitators who mm. don't really understand <laughs> The point that the exactly, pioneers were trying yeah. to make, and I think you, when you've got, when especially when you're dealing with such a, an incredibly delicate and sensitive topic, it requires respect. It also requires a degree of intellect in order to mm. tackle such a thing. And I think Patrick, you can't think of one on the spot, but you know, there's just there's a litany of them in lots of. I must say, um, because I've kind of fallen off the wagon on modern modern cinema um which is a bad thing i haven't, i don't watch anywhere near as many new releases as i should um but in television it's quite prominent i think just yeah. rape scenes just used to kind of like and again maybe it's not the intent of the writers and the the showrunners um but it comes across as like oh this is just a jolt then is it um as yeah, opposed it's to plot point it's shock yeah, value yeah, yeah as opposed to yeah. what it really should be which is right this needs to be a significant have significant meaning hence why i said about the whole kind of jesus christ allegory stuff mm. um with matsu is because we know that they're trying to take away her power as as, a, as an idol um she's on a kind of 
semi-cross. It's in front of everybody, so it's a, a shaming, mm-hmm. but it has the kind yeah. of opposite effect. Well, it initially has the yeah. short-term effect that they want, which is that it gets the women to turn, the prisoners to turn yeah. on, on it. But in the end, it fuels her vengeance and is actually just another, it's another demonstration of how the state is just as bad as the criminals and everybody's, mm. everybody's muddy. You know, that was, again, that was the same thing with the tourists. It was like, to me, they were, the only difference is they didn't get caught. Yeah. Well, and, and the, 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 the older man's crimes were state sanctioned, you know, as, as was Goda. I mean, it, Jesus, like he ordered four guards to do that because he felt that he could, because it was within within his uh, uh, what he felt was his remit as a as a protector of the law, and it's um, yeah. So he says uh, to them, "Is that this is your job as guards? This is part of mm, your job." Yeah, but you don't think she's like she's destroyed his manhood at this point, you know? So it also, again, I'm not denying it's political, but. It's it's a, a man reacting to um, mm. to being personally, you know, sort of challenged, you know, isn't it? Well, challenged, challenged castrated, whatever ridiculed. you want to say. He's got one eye plucked out. She's going after the other yeah. one. He's got to do something. It's cool, like what you were saying. You know, it's 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 character motivated. It's internally motivated, and yet it has clear kind of ramifications to be extracted out to a social issue you can you can read it as as what's happening on screen and each character's motivations generally make sense as heightened as they are but also you know it's not it's not difficult to map those onto an allegory for something broader than itself like you were saying galley that if you're going to deploy something like this to me as well i feel like you should be trying to say something with it something that you that you can't say with with another with another action Perhaps the message has something to do with the line driving all the men insane. Um, yeah. Female mm, actions uh-huh. driving men insane and provoking men into acting possessively and violently <sighs> in order to protect their emotions. And like, this is the vengeance of the women who've been subjected to that violence. Mm. And I don't want to say you know, through no fault of their own, but through their femininity and the way women make us crazy, you know, because it's a human instinct and jealousy and passion. And like John Lennon and Yoko used to talk about like this idea of possessing someone. Well, they said, didn't they, it was driven by love, hatred and jealousy. Yeah. And and this idea that if, if I can't have her, then no one will, that this like male monkey attitude and like a retaliation to that. So I feel like there's there's a feminist you know, thing all the way, all the way through it. It's a great feminist text. You're right. This has gone to the top of my list. Like it, it's in my conclusion, but like if someone asks now, or if I just, if I, you know, there are a lot of powerful women in my life and I, I would, wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to, to them. Interesting that you mentioned straw dogs, um, just as, and, and what you were saying about, you know, that the, the men being driven to these, to these acts purely because of their possessiveness of the women in their lives or, you know, uh, the straw dogs being a, a fascinating one in that it does explore some really, really kind of very, uh, uh, um, unsafe territory in a fascinating way. Um, and, but it is driven by, Peck and part really drilling down into some very, very dark male insecurities. And he's bringing it from, from that perspective. It's all about like, you know, male fear of, of, of losing their, 
you know, their virility and the, you know, the fact that him brandishing a shotgun is what brings him back to manhood. And that's why I think it's so fascinating that the Ito seems so, um, so attuned to the women in his movies and so, um, unwilling to delve into the uh, uh the the men beyond them being agents of an oppressive state which is completely completely fair for the 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 film he's trying to make there's no there's no great point in in examining the lives of these guards in what he's doing he's got an 89 minute film to get through but you do see a lot of that in goda but you don't need it devlin you, look these these men fail upwards he, you know, I mean, that's the other thing. It's like at the beginning, he's got no eye. So he's already lost an eye. So he's already lost a bit of control. Then when he brings her out for this state visit, that goes horribly wrong. He still gets promoted. So do I need to know anything more about this system? No. Both films open with him. The first film is him getting a special certificate. Yeah. And then it gets ruined when, uh, when, when Nami, uh, escapes. Se- several films in my life have just knocked me for six. I think that the master was one of them. Evil Dead 2. I'm, I'm talking in terms of the photography alone. Uh, Buffalo 66, Rumblefish. And I would add this without hesitating. It was, it just really wowed me. And like the, the first thing that came to mind was I was on Instagram this week and, um, there was a blood simple clip on the, uh, Criterion Instagram and uh, Francis McDormand was talking about um, filmmakers that know how to edit and how you're in great hands if a director who storyboards and knows when one shot begins and the next shot ends and they stick to it and they, they accomplish it and they put like a side-by-side storyboards and uh, the final final thing and I think the best directors are also the best editors and uh, you can tell that they're thinking about how a shot begins and ends and how a shot cuts to the next one. It's the McTiernan thing again of just prior planning and forethought. And it's, it's throughout the entire thing. I was quite staggered by it really. Mm. Do you have like a, a, a specific favorite if you had to come up with? I'll try and put, well, I've, again, I've got two pages, but I'll pick, I'll pick a couple. There's one where it, uh, Matsu's face is on the left of the frame and then the, f- and it dissolves, which I hate. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then the rest of the film just continues on. So she's yeah. somehow superimposed and it just, it keeps going and going and going. There's two or three shots subsequently, but her mm. face she, remains. She's watching the, um, Okawa visit her son, isn't she? Yeah. It's like, yeah. she's yeah. just watching. Yeah. It's great. Um, there was another one, probably my, I'll just do my favorite because I'll go on and on, but, um, it's when they're telling the story of the seven sinful girls. And by that point, I really want to hear what each of them did at that point. Um, and there's a shot with the, the witch at the top of the seven girls, uh, with a red tint to them. And each, each of them has their own flame at the bottom of the frame. And I haven't really talked about my OCD because it's quite, it's quite personal, first of all, but I have a, a big problem with it. And, uh, it, it doesn't always manifest itself as like a hand washing thing, you know, like some people talk about, but it's more of an anxiety driven thing. And sometimes I see things on film that are so pleasing to the eye. It's like, um, it's typically like a neatness and like an orderly thing. And this, this film has like several, several of them that were just so 
brilliantly done and and uh, really pleasing to look at and and think thing when things are presented in like a really immaculate way i find that really impressive and when i because it's lenses and light and staging and performance and and then when devlin said how quickly it was all put together i was just amazed by it uh, so that one's probably my my favorite oh there's another one where the camera whizzes past uh, I, I can't find my notes for it. Oh, but it's, a... it's it's right before Oba tells the the group that she'd stabbed her child, and the camera and veers off past both yeah. of them over and over again. Yeah, yeah and times, it repeats but... the same one back on her. It's just in- incredible. Yeah, there's an amazing tracking shot across the prisoners at the beginning when she's dragged out as well, Devlin. I love mm. that shot. But there's, I got really into the the uh, studio stuff in this film. The, the collapsing house around the old woman, the leaves, yeah. the imagery of Matsu in the wind holding the knife in the wide shot. But there's also like, going from autumn to winter in oh, just using lighting and stuff. prop leaves. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually all that stuff in the lighting, the, 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 like almost neon lighting. And there's some, is it in the old lady's house? Their, their faces are like got a green hue. But the background's mm. all blue, and it's almost spotlighted their faces, and I couldn't work out how the lighting set it worked. But it's really striking, and it's, it's like really it's like everyone has out. like a an individual spotlight. But it's the same color. It's yeah. really clever. There's a bit where they're, they're around the campfire, and it cuts to Matsu, and my thought or whatever I wrote down was like, that's the best shot of anyone eating a dog around a campfire that will ever <laughs> exist. <laughs> And the be- the reverse of Matsu is the best shot of a woman retaliating wordlessly to a woman eating a dog around a campfire. If that makes any sense, it's just like these, the, the specific nature of it, it's like they're wringing the celluloid, uh, to get everything out of it. And, and there's, there's a shot in the, in the back of the police van when they think Matsu's dead and the, the guards come in and they, one of the guards gets strangled. And it's that kind of body cam, snorry cam shot of him being strangled. And it doesn't end. It's, I've got it clocked here at 23.59. And you watch it and it's kind of a fascinating shot that doesn't end. And it's really uncomfortable. But that's like new tech. You know, Hollywood wasn't really doing that till the 90s. And it, it, it it's like an amazing shot that's in your face and gritty and Again, the director knowing when to make you feel uncomfortable and, and showing it a heinous act. We talked about like moves there, a lot of camera moves, but there's, there's one where like there's the lighting tones on Matsu are often really different to other characters. There's a bit where I think it's probably the dog eating sequence where she's a pale colored ghostly white when they're around that campfire. And then this, the door bursts open. And everyone else has a skin tone approaching normal, which is really rare in this film because it's got the the blue hue everywhere. And she's kind of singled out and she's spotlit, but the moonlight is justifying it. So even when it gets surreal, she's the closest to the door. So it's well thought through. The light's still motivated. Even when it gets expressionistic, they've thought through why the light would be different on her. I never mentioned it before and i don't know why because in my notes i wrote spaghetti western sergio leone and the other one i mentioned was kubrick um and, right, I, don't, and okay. I don't think that's me being hyperbolic because the the revenge kill at the end felt mm. very kubrickian to me 
Um, not only because it was elongated, classic Kubrick, you know, why make it five seconds when it could be 20? Um, mm-hmm. but, but also because, like you say, they were within what is essentially a simple story being told, which is him trying to escape, being stabbed, and, uh, and here kind of very much enjoying the fact that, um, we're gonna we're gonna do this for a while. You're not gonna get away with just like hmm. one one slit of the it, the neck. It covers um, four different locations. <laughs> covers the entirety of of Tokyo. Yeah. I think I don't know, yeah. but I, but yeah, I I got a lot of Kubrick. I got a lot of Clockwork Orange. I think it was the one well, at the, the end there, the where it's like the, well. the the brutalist sort of architecture and stuff. There's all those bl- the blue hue and the mystical folklore and the Shakespearean witches and things all vanish and all of a sudden we're in Tokyo um, for, for this, like the final four minutes, I think she is. And that's when it gets really iconic. You can get back into Tarantino again. I like the way she's dressed well with her hat. But yeah, that, with the hat and the iconic black outfit, she's sort of transcending space and time. Like uh, who did that? Uh, oh, uh, Sean Connery in The Rock, where she's, 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 jump, <laughs> she's, she's behind all the different trees. And then at one point she's yeah. like a giallo slasher and she... She literally cuts the screen in half. Yeah. Which is yeah, like another great. fourth wall breaking flourish that I That's really quite like. cool. Yeah, yeah. If um, I was to have any criticism at the film, um something I mentioned to Devlin on Friday when I first watched it. I, I did struggle with their names and who was who. Mm. Yeah. It's difficult when they're all prisoners too, isn't it? It's it's really hard. That's true. I don't think they said their names very yeah. much. I also think that that possibly comes from the names being so unfamiliar to us that they're buried within the... Yeah, uh, yeah. They probably do say their names, but the subtitles, I would imagine, excises it because it would be considered like not completely necessary information. But th- did you not get like... It, it washed over me, but I got it. You know, I got the... I got the point without knowing everyone's name. I mean, I, the only negative I wrote, cause we have been really, we've been waxing the car, but uh, the only thing I wrote down as a potential negative was, um, my first negative note was, uh, it was such an assault on the senses at times that I began to lose focus slightly. It was like the intake was slightly too extreme. And maybe it's because we make notes for the, for the podcast and things like that. But I, that was the only thing, like literally the only thing I wrote down that was even remotely negative that it, it was a slightly too much and i sort of wanted to pause it at times but um yeah it was it really hits you in 90 minutes it really goes for it doesn't it the only regret i have is that i would have loved to have watched this with all of you and then went mm-hmm. for a pint um probably everyone in the pub would have thought we were a bunch of weirdos but <laughs> that happens anyway but that's what i would have yeah, that would happen without the film it would, yeah. <laughs> because I would have just, I would have loved to have been able to ruminate and probably process mm. it with somebody else. Because you're right, Matt. It is a bit of an assault. Um, it's an yeah. assault on everything. So yeah, mm. that's the. But then the, the compliment there is that you probably will watch it again when you when you're ready at some point. Absolutely. Well, we'll we'll do our final thoughts and recommendations. I will start with you, Matt. Will you? Would you recommend? Uh, Jailhouse 41 to our listeners. I do feel like I have to see it again. I'm, I tried to do a Pauline Kale style single watch with this one and, and with most of the ones that I've never seen before, uh, to try and get an accurate first impression. Cause that's the only time I can really do it. A lot of the things we watch, I've seen, you know, if you, if you, if you knew how many times I'd seen aliens, it would be embarrassing. Um, uh, cause a lot of my recommends are colored by nostalgia and I had to sort of think outside that this time. This idea that women commit crimes because of men was one of the key takeaway lines here. And it, it's almost as, it's like a, if a film was designed to incite a riot, like this would be a, a great one, you know, uh, and 
applicable or allegorical uh, plight of the woman movie, maybe. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely recommend it to the women that I know and uh, not just powerful Asian women here, but um, resilient women all over the world. It's, it's a film for them and I don't think they get enough films, but this is probably worth a hundred. Um, you know, it's, it's rebellious in a very beautiful way. It, it felt at times like everything within the frame and everything within the story, um, it was essential, but it was also like a cup that was overflowing. Uh, and that's a positive, not a negative in this case. Um, it, it probably has more detail than was necessary for a, for a simple story like this. And it made, that's what made it special. Uh, it was overflowing, but it was rich. And the amount that they managed to cram into a 90 minute running time, I thought was phenomenal. Uh, the craftsmanship of it, we've talked about that a lot already. Um, it, it was great to see a film like this, like that it illustrates that film is art, I think, because we can forget, we can get a bit, it sounds a bit pretentious sometimes to call, to call a movie art, but really, it really is. It's poetry. It's uh, painting with light. It's the use of music. And if, if anyone ever tells you that film is an art, you know, you can point them in, in the direction of, of this. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a weird weeknight recommend for me. Um, a, a group, a group of women beat a dog to death and then eat it around a campfire. So it's, it's hard to put that in a little box for people. It, it is a horror film at times. It's a dark fairy tale. Um, I think it's, it's only an hour and a half. So if you want to get weird after work on a Monday to Thursday, maybe that's when I'd recommend it. One of those days that it will give you a jolt. It'll be a hard hitting thing that you won't forget. So uh, it's an absolute 100% recommend. Thank you, Devlin. I'll uh, pass over to Patrick. Hmm. Well said. Thank you. And yeah, I, I recommend it uh, as will Devlin. And thank you, Devlin, for recommending it because I may never have ever seen this. And I'm really glad I have now. Um, I was really quite encapsulated by it. Uh, I my, my viewing of it on Friday got interrupted, which was no fault of anyone's just was it's just life isn't it and i was gutted <laughs> i was so into it i was so mesmerized and kind of almost besotted by the imagery that to take me out of it suddenly was really jarring in my moment on friday and when i, I was hungry to go back to it to finish what was what was going on and we said it's a plot light film but I, it still took me on a journey and I was still really, really taken by the characters, Matsu in particular, Oba as well. And I wanted to know what was going on. There was, um, moments where I almost cheered for Matsu. And there was a moment, ah, the moment when she's thrown off the bus and the guards run up to her and she just stands there and face stares them down. I think it's just terrific, like really great and a wonderful character. Um, that you don't, I, I, I said to Devlin offline, like, what, where do we have in the seventies that was like this in film? You have your musicals we talked about, which is like, we've just explored Julie Andrews and that thing, but something like this, I, I don't know. It's alien in 79 discussed as well, but I was really struggling to find like, 
a comparison at the time. Um, Matsu's now, I don't know, a hero for me. Uh, technically, I thought it was brilliant despite it's quite experimental and seemingly low budget and to hear that it was not rushed but in a tight time restriction. I'm, I'm deeply impressed. And it kind of, I don't think I've watched an art house film for a long time. I think I've been very uh, mainstream recently and I'm very glad to have reminded myself that things like this exist because, um, it's, it's, I know exactly what I'm going to pick next for you guys. Or, and I'll, I'll give you that because, because of this Devlin, because I want to go something that I was actually reminded of, uh, in this film. Have you seen, uh, Fassbinder's Corral? It's a German film. Um, so I'm going to pick that next just to say that for us all because I won't go into it, but it, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely picking it. I wanted to have another grow. We've gone highbrow with you all about you something <laughs> that's artistic and highbrow. Yeah. So to speak. And I, I don't know. I found a lot of it quite enchanting. I found a lot of it quite, quite disturbing. Um, it took me on a journey and it was like fascinating. I thought it was a, a really excellent film, actually. Yeah, cracking stuff. Thank you. Gally. Oh, I don't have much more to add. I think you two have both um, had all the sandwiches and the bounty bar that was in the box. So um, I'm uh, I'm living, breathing proof that you're never too old to discover new things. So, yes, thank you, Davlin, for introducing this uh, to us. And hopefully our listeners will appreciate it too and, and go away and, and take a look at it. And some of them might not like it. Some of them... It might very well be, as you say, a gateway into uh, expanding uh, knowledge of, of this era of cinema in Japan. I thought it was brilliant. I genuinely did. I thought I was, it was fantastic. I, I was not expecting to be so enchanted by it, for, despite some of the, you know, some of the ugly scenes and some of the you know, really quite challenging uh, topics that it's that it's tackling. Um, it was for those reasons that I really appreciated it. Uh, and I, and I, I engaged with it far more intellectually than I expected. I expected it to be quite cool. And the one way we have not used in this entire discussion is cool. Um, and that's, I think, a compliment to the film because I think there's a danger, uh, when you discover new things to just fall into, oh, that was cool. Um, without really interrogating what it, you know, beyond service level. So no, thank you very much, Devlin. It's a strong recommendation for me. I'm with Matt though. This is a mi- this is a midweek um, existential crisis watch where you're wondering why you go to work. Watch this. <laughs> just to start off on my on my conclusion is that I'm just absolutely thrilled that you guys liked it so much. I mean, uh, to to let any listeners in on how much. I bang on about these fucking films to these guys is honestly ridiculous. And I do feel like I, uh, um, I basically ended up picking it so that I would shut up about it. Um, <laughs> and I think that sometimes I do develop these little kind of avenues of obsession and stuff. And, and sometimes they're maybe not for everyone, but I really did feel like that this was something that you guys would appreciate. And I'm just really thrilled that you did and that you kind of, you've, you've caught onto it as, as much as I did. Um, uh, and really, I, I wanted to pick it just to see that this is something that I think that people will relate to. I think I don't think that this is, you know, some marginalized kind of difficult uh, uh, movie that's going to um, 
is going to derail people's attention and it's going to be particularly uh, uh it is a challenging watch but i do think that it's accessible in in many different ways uh galley is interesting he said that we didn't call it cool because it's true we didn't say that it was cool even though it is even though mako kaji is super cool um and uh um the you know the presentation of it is is poppy there's there's theme songs it's incredibly well lit it's tightly edited it's less than 90 minutes it's you know there's there's killings and and prison movie and 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 genre elements but it just <laughs> but it but it kind of yeah it transcends it all without ever feeling like it's above it at the same time um which is just a fascinating mix so um yeah meiko kaji um her career didn't really peak beyond this which is a shame because this this rocketed her to a certain amount of stardom and she seemed to reject it in the same way that shunya ito could have stuck and churned out these films five six seven eight nine times over and he would have been paid handsomely for it and he rejected it because he felt he'd said what he needed to say it's it's sad that you don't get the uh the volume of work that you could have got from these incredible artists but it's also in a way kind of retrospectively amazing that you get something so kind of special like this you know because i do think it's a standout in the series it's a standout in its genre it's a standout in its national cinema it's a standout of its era i just think there's 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 really something quite special going on with this film team where can our listeners find female prisoner scorpion colon jailhouse 41 so female prisoner scorpion the series uh there are four films in the original run the meiko kaji run uh, three of those are directed by Shunya Ito. That is Female Prisoner 701, uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion Jailhouse 41, and uh, finally, Female Prisoner Scorpion, uh, not Grudge Song, the one before. Beast Stable is the third film. Very good. Uh, Grudge Song is directed by uh, Yasuhara Hasebe, who'd worked with Meiko Kaji on a number of other films in the 1970s. Um, uh, those four films, the Make or Kaji Run, are available on Arrow uh, Video, Blu-ray, and DVD set. It's an exceptional selection. It's not particularly expensive. It's been out for a couple of years, so you should be able to pick it up pretty cheap. Cool. Uh, there is also a Eureka Videos DVD box set, which was the original one that I bought. That's maybe around 15 years old now. Ka, ka, ka. But I would say there's very little point in getting that <laughs> if you can get the, um, the the Blu-ray box set. It's also available on the Arrow Video. Sorry, player. I just got that. That was, the- that was a delayed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a shooting stars. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I was a delayed reaction. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's also currently streaming on Shudder, I believe, certainly in the UK. That's how I watched it. If I may plug the blog once again, if you've got this far and not read it, um, shameless self-promotion. Uh, the blog also contains links to uh, a series of posters and t-shirts that I've designed for all four films. This has been an ongoing little... A uh, project of mine, I finally finished it. So if you like these films, if you like what we said about them, you can buy them. You can buy them on Etsy as limited edition Giclee prints, or you can buy them on t-shirts from our trusty T-Null store, where you can also pick up Rewind Movie Podcast merchandise at extremely reasonable prices. Yes, yes. Uh, Dallin, I, I, I hadn't actually cleared this with you, but are we doing some form of Christmas sale or are we waiting for January? I don't think our prices can get any lower, uh, can they? They're technically as yeah, low. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I would be, uh, I would have You'd to be ship a few to run pound a coins. I see. To, yeah. I would have to ship pound coins to people's mm. houses with their t-shirts <laughs> to charge any less than we do. We do this for the love, not the money. 
Ah, uh, this is true. This Not is true. true. Give me money. Yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Give me a second series, you shit. <laughs> Smell my cheese. Anyway, um, listeners, if you like what we do, then please like, share, spread the gospel team. Okay. A wee review, for example, on Apple would be fantastic. Or wherever you listen to your podcast, a little star that maybe a five. I mean, <laughs> hey, happy with any kind of star. Any engagement is great, but a one. Stars a plural, Gunny. Oh, but thank you very much. Well, you know, five star, five stars. It doesn't really matter as long as they engage. <laughs> <laughs> um, to come along and let's play shooting. <laughs> Davlin, I think we've all a collective thank you. Uh, we really enjoyed it. And, and that we're not appeasing you either because, you know, ask Patrick, when something gets thrown into the mix that we're not aware of, Sometimes it can go bad. It's <laughs> no, it's great. I uh, honestly, I'm, I'm I'm absolutely chuffed that you guys have uh, have have had a chat about this with me because there's not many people that um, have seen it that I know in real life. So now I've got three fellows, three fellows <laughs> I know I can talk kaji with. Yes, yes, indeed. And if you ever see those four reprobates in the corner. Um, <laughs> stay away! Stay away! No, 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 come no, over! No, come no, over! No, there we no, go. No. Reference the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Don't get your hats and caught. Next up, listeners, for our actual Christmas special, and it's Christmas related. It, we're doing Home Alone. Okay, we're going to touch on the sequel. What we're not going to do is deep dive into the series because, quite frankly. It's not worth if it. If it ain't Macaulay, it's shite. Scarlett Johansson's in number three, though. It's still not worth it. I know. I went to the cinema and saw it. Patrick. It's rubbish. Rubbish. Anyway, that's what we're doing next. So if you want to get that watched in before Christmas Eve, then do that because the episode will be out before Christmas. And that's it. So we'll say a goodbye. It's Gally. Still wondering if he shit himself <laughs> in Christmas. In Glasgow. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone. And it's London's number one Alex D. Lynn's apologist, Devlin, signing off. If you look closer at the dingling, it's good. <laughs> and twisting it around <laughs> is good. It's Patrick in London. A woman's heart is her song, her song of vengeance. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And we will catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.